Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to this week's edition of the Luck on Sunday podcast, the edited highlights from the two and a half hour weekly show that's brought to you live and free to air on Racing UK, soon to be Racing TV. This week's guests were James Willoughby, Lizzie Kelly, making her third appearance on Luck on Sunday, and Kate Harrington, part of the new Racing TV broadcast team in Ireland. Our special guest was the Chief Regulatory Officer of the British Horse Racing Authority, Brant Dunshay, whose intray bulges even more than it normally does with the recent publication of the Cheltenham Festival Review and the impending review on penalties surrounding use of the whip. So much talked about in recent days. Another compelling edition of the show and now you can enjoy it all again in the podcast ahead of next week when we'll be bringing you a Christmas special that features Ruby Walsh, Jason Watson and Neil Channing. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. One person who clearly knows what she's doing is Bryony Frost, who was the hero of the hour again yesterday on Frodon in the Caspian Caviar Gold Cup. And this is an extraordinary horse because on his day, he can produce figures right up there with the best horses in national hunt racing. And he clearly has a massive fondness for the new course at Cheltenham. And he was given a, a ride, uh, Lizzie, full of swash and buckle from, from Bryony, and he responded to her every urge. He's a, he's a very good horse on his day, isn't he? Yeah, lovely. I mean, he was only four when he won it. Um, two years ago, it was very young, really, for a horse, for a race that is a bit of a war of attrition, and and it looked like a war of attrition yesterday as well. And it's quite funny because everyone's come up to have a go, um, and he's fended every one of them off. And there's something about him that she clearly really enjoys riding because he sort of takes her into every fed. She can be bold and she can be aggressive, and he he keeps responding for her. Yeah, I mean horses like that are just a joy to ride, really. Um, when you're lucky enough to sit on a horse that jumps from fence to fence um, and almost uses their jumping before they have to really knuckle down and gallop, you know, because every time that she's that he's jumped a fence, you know, she's you know got another length, got another length, and um, yeah, I mean, horses like that are fantastic to ride. And I said he, he clearly has a great affinity for the new course because he won this race last year and he's a history maker in that respect, and he's still only a six-year-old rising seven. How different is the new course over fences to the old course, and what are the different attributes a horse needs? Um, to be honest with you, like I, I can't really ever tell the difference. I think that, I think that perhaps it's not indoor. It, it's <laughs> <laughs> it is. They, they are, um, they are slightly different. I think that you find that this new course allows them to sort of gallop a bit more. It's not quite as tight, but I mean, to be perfectly honest. I just sort of, you, you just ride the race. Mm. I don't really think too much outside the box, just ride the race. So yeah. you just, just concentrate on finding the right way around. Uh, James, the impact of Bryony Frost on the sport yeah. and, uh, and, and her significance within it, well, just assess that for well, us. Well, I'd like to give a big up to Racing TV 
to, to segue back to the previous <coughs> question, and that is Ruby Walsh, his, his description of Brownie Frost, what she brings uh, to, to a horse, was the first time that I kind of thought to myself, there's more in their results than just randomness, because it's very easy for riders to actually have a good run and people to make inferences about their skill that isn't justified by just the, uh, the, the proper sort of um, statistics of the issue. But he explained to us what she actually did, and if you actually watch, he's, I think he's a game changer for racing TV, if I may be allowed to broaden the discussion. You, you may, of course. I think he's an absolute game changer. I think what, what he will do is he'll make us realise what the other ex-professional riders are bringing to the table in comparison. I think we don't get enough. There's too much pleading the fifth. There's too much not telling us the actual technical. You watch skiing, they tell you what the good skiers do. You watch any, you watch show jumping, as I did for the mm. world, the, the, what was it called? The World Equestrian Game. Thank you. That was outdoors. Yes. It was outdoors, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they tell you what a good show jumper does. I'd love to know what a good jump jockey does. Vividly. Do you see what I'm saying, yeah, Kate? It was very interesting. Um, yeah. Ruby's um, interview after he got, uh, or after he won on Min uh, last week at Punchstown, mm -hmm. um, he said, Oh, Jack Kennedy learned to keep me in. He, like he's, fi mm. he's finally mm. learned in his interview mm. after he's finally learned to keep me in when um, just they're coming to the second last of Punchstown Jack literally elbowed Ruby and said yeah. no you're not getting out and Rachel slightly came off the inside Rachel Blackmore but yeah came off the inside and Ruby got up her inner but like he did yeah. jump half the wing nearly as well I'd mm. say it nearly was about he was the bush bit at the side his foot definitely brushed through that but um, and he said uh, Rachel will learn <laughs> but like that's Ruby's analysis he's yeah. like and there was a few big races last year that maybe Ruby did get up Jack's inside but he's learned from them mm. and that's one thing Ruby does bring he'll yeah. say their faults and their pros what we need for them to do is not parrot the form book in other words we need them to not do what we can do we know, as people that can measure out the, the output of horses, that you need to go the shortest way around in the most even pace possible. And when you read Ruby's book about him counting to 14 to teach himself pace, it's just it's magic stuff. If you're, yeah. a, if you're a non horseman, if you're an outsider to the sport, to understand that, you know, what, when people say that riders are brilliant and stuff, as if they're the same as kind of like physicists or pianists or something, that it comes from some, some internal genius, mm. it doesn't. It comes from the application of principles, sound thinking, bravery, all those things that we really love about watching racing. He can put it into words, you know, because mm. he's got the gift and he's also a world-class sportsman as well. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to watching him on racing TV. I think he, and the others as well. I mean, I think it's a great yeah. lineup, the, the Irish lineup. I think you, as a, as a young broadcaster, I think you're very, very lucky to, to be involved because, you know, you all make this, there's a great synergy, Lucky, mm. isn't there? Mm. You know from the time when you've had really good guests, if you have good guests on, you become a good presenter. If you're a good presenter, you make the guests better. Don't give the game away, James. <laughs> well, my days are up, but I've done it for over 20 years, you know, and I really... You might think your days are up, no, but they, you'll be back on this show every week, no, I can tell well, you that. This is an exception. At, at this rate, I can tell you somebody else will be on the show every week, and that's Brownie Frost, because she joins us again on the line. Excellent, good news. Morning, Brownie. Good morning, everyone. How are we all doing? All we're, right? we're all doing great. This is becoming a, a, a regular occurrence, but we're very happy that it's a regular occurrence. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, now, this horse is a bit special, isn't he? Well, just, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, he, he, you know, he's just that person in the yard as well. He, he's a game chap who, who always, you know, comes out. He's got a bit of attitude at home, you know. He, Holly Evans rides him every day, and she's, she's tiny as well. And he just, he like, you know, he'll go along with his head on the floor and just put off on her random points and things like that. He's got so much character about him. And then, 
you know, you get into the race course and, you know, you can never deny anybody who gives everything to you, whether it be, you know, anyone in the walk of life. And he does that. You know, you know for a fact I was just going to the races yesterday on Old Guard and him. I knew for a fact I'd have two horses that will give me everything and I can give everything to them. And when you're a jockey to be able to ride somebody like him, ah, just, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's just what, it's what you've been working for. So essentially you drive to the races or go to the races with a much bigger smile on your face and presumably therefore can approach the task at hand with a deal more confidence. Oh, well, and confidence a lot comes from your team, from your owners and your trainers, you know. They, they're the ones that, that give you the confidence to go out there. You know, I was really lucky when I lost my claim that Paul and Mr. and Mrs. Volk, they kept me with Frodon. You know, it, could, it would have been so easy with all that weight on him to say, right, B, I'm sorry, but we've got a claim off him. But they didn't. They stuck with me. And that, that for me, was the biggest feather um, in my cap. And, um, you know, for those, for those people to turn around and say, no, you suit him, you stick with him. You know, and that's just, you know, to be able to give me the opportunities. You know, I wouldn't be talking to you guys if it wasn't for Paul and all of my trainers. That actually led me up, but mainly Paul because he, he was the one when I was a nobody who gave me those opportunities to ride horses I throw on. Just watching you here in the closing stages, he's clearly a horse whose, whose attitude is fantastic because he is giving yeah. everything. You can see that just by the, the body language and, and, your, and your body language. And you, you, you're very content to ride him on what appears to be sort of quite a loose rein and just let him get, let him get on with it and not interfere with him too much. Is that because yeah. Yeah, he's a fairly easy horse to ride? Uh, yeah, he, he likes his own way. So like, down at the start, we got we got a good jump off, and, and you can be so confident in him on his jumping that you know that speed he's good at. You know, so those first three come really fast. You go over the road, jump the third, and then you come around that real tight bend there. And um, you know, for those first three, it was very much just keep your heels down into him and just keep your fingertips on him, but don't tell him, don't see any strides. Just let him roll into them wherever he comes, where where, he, where he'll be. And like, he's got that sort of attitude up the hill for the first time over the last. If you watch him, we just get a lot lower on him because we needed that to be a good jump because we needed to get that half length in front of Jamie. Just then I could have my first breather on the top of that bend. I didn't want to be half a length down and not be able to get my first breather. So we got a good jump there, but he knew he had to. You know, he's that much of a pro now. He knows how to keep himself in the race. He knows how to win. You know, so you're very much, I'm his partner at the end of the day going down the back straight, the pressure he put on everybody was just immense. And you could hear it behind you, you know, you could hear horses hitting fences and things like that. So you go, right, okay, take another breather, mate, take another breather. The, our main breather came on the home bend, where we jumped uh, three out so well. Like, coming down to that downhill fence for a horse to operate over a fence like that is just, you know, it's, it is like he's got wings underneath me. And then we were able to ask us, like, right, throw it on, we wait now. We wait until they come to us. You need fully lungs, you've got a lot of weight. We've got a big hill, come on, wait for me. And he did. And it was until you heard them. And then, like, and then on the apex of the bend, if you can kick him off, you can nick one or two lengths there, you know? And the way that he came up for me, two out, and, and just, you know, and I think mainly the reason why my rings were so long is because my hands weren't working. They <laughs> 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 were so cold. <laughs> but um, no, he's honest. He's so honest. And that's, you know, that's, that's what you need in your partner. And, and it makes you brave, you know? Um, yeah. Briley, I mean, on on figures yesterday, he's run an absolutely massive race because he's won that off a mark in the 160s. Is he a horse now, you feel, with another year under his belt that can take a hand at the very top table, that can be a grade one horse? Oh, look, you know, I believe in him, yeah. 
the way that we've done that yesterday, and I, I think he's a much stronger horse than he was last year. His determination is still very much the same, but he just seems to be a lot more mature in the way that he handles his dates now as well. You know, he used to get a bit too excited and things like that. Um, and also he listens to me just a little bit more. Not a lot, but just a little bit. So I can, when I do need to give him breathers, he will come back to me, whereas he used to just take me on a bit too much. Um, but I, I think, you know, and he's only six. Um, and with, you know, he's, he's such a young horse, but he's got such a wide head on mm. him. He's been over a lot of fences. He's covered a lot of miles. And he wants to as well. You know, there's the determination in him is, is stronger than ever. And he knows how to win his races now, you know. And riding him, you can feel him working it all out. You know, he, you can, he knows when the pressure comes on him. He'll tell you when a horse is coming to him. You know, you feel him urge forward. And, yeah, he's just magic to ride. Bryony, thank you very much for joining us again. Congratulations yeah. yesterday and best of luck for the, uh, for the Christmas period. Yeah, right. Fingers crossed, eh? Thanks, guys. Speak soon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Bryony Frost. And that's the thing, Lizzie, isn't it? I think being able to talk your way through the race with that much detail and in that much depth is what has um, endeared her to the, to, the, to the racing public, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what James was saying about, um, you know, I think a lot of time jockeys are sort of expected to be able to regurgitate the form book um, and you listen to post-race interviews that are very... Um, Formulaic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you discuss your chances and yeah. how you felt your horse's form compared to somebody else's form. And a lot of the time, you know, you want to actually have a little bit mm. more to your story. Mm. Um, obviously, in, in this era where, you know, we're, we're sort of expected to be able to tell a story, um, and be sort of more entertaining and be a personality, yeah. um, you know, she does very well at that. And I think that um, I've always felt that personally, I, I actually don't want to be able to regurgitate a form book because I never want to be in a position in a race yeah. where I'm riding a horse and I've got a horse on my outside and I look at it and go, oh, well, that's only 50 to one, so I can discount it when actually that horse could win that race. I think a jockey has got to be really careful about how they view sort of form and all those sorts of things, um, which is a little bit of a, a tangent, but in, in essence, I think the nice thing about what we're seeing a lot more of today from riders is having more of a discussion about the horse and the horse's story and how mm. they feel. And, you know, like you said, mm. the point of watching racing, especially now where the coverage, the television coverage is so close and so good, you can, you can see a, ho a jockey changing his hands, you can yeah. see a jockey moving his goggles, mm. like, discuss those things they're interesting yeah. that's what people want to talk totally. about and want, yeah. want to hear yeah. about tell me something i didn't know before that's exactly the point. Yeah. Yeah. And no exactly. point regurgitating the racing post I agree. we don't get a lot of that though we don't get a lot of it it's like you know ryan moore gets derided for his response to interviewers and he really should be a bit more polite but to be honest with you 90 percent of the questions he gets asked are completely and utterly inane let's be let's be honest about it lucky some, some, sometimes well, we don't. I, I don't want to go off on this well, too much. What is that give, give a rider the platform to explain what they're doing and they'll do it. If you yeah. ask them a down-packed question because you can't be bothered to do any research, you'll, mm. get a, you'll get a crap answer, which is what happens. Uh, some, sometimes when somebody is that more, bit more difficult yeah. to interview, sometimes you then internally as an interviewer feel a bit more pressure. So you, you, but, you, you end up saying something daft. But he does respond. Ryan Moore. He does, yeah, he's great. He I, likes I being asked good questions. He's just not, he shouldn't be as rude as he is. I'm not defending him, but, but at the same time, I'm saying I understand it. Now, here's one for you, James. 
you'll have enjoyed this because you like a fast horse, whether it's a jumper or a flat horse, Brain Power, who won the oh, international yeah. hurdle yesterday. Uh, now, this was a, an inspired decision by the owner, Michael Buckley, to ask trainer Nicky Henderson to return this horse to hurdles. He's a horse who hadn't hitherto had a particularly good record at Cheltenham, but he showed yesterday that he was fine around the track and he travelled and moved like the class horse that he is. And Kate, you know the owner pretty well because he's had horses with you for years. Uh, some, most of the time when an owner says to a trainer, do this, I want to do this, the, it, they end up with egg on their face. On this occasion, it was a, a glorious triumph. It was brilliant and it's great. It's lovely to see Michael um, have a good horse again. And it's great that Brian, uh, um, Brain has actually um, possibly fulfill, is starting to fulfill his uh, potential. But he's always, Michael's always held him in very, very high regard. Are the were the cheek pieces a first time? Or I think he, he wore yesterday? them. Did he wear them over fences, fences first time this Compton. season? And his second time wind yeah. operation, isn't it? Second time yeah. after a wind second up yesterday. Second time wind operation, and um, like you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you guys were saying last week on the wind ups." I think they do work. I think they're they do work, and like we have a very good horse called Woodland Opera, and he's done amazing things this season, and he's had three wind ups. And maybe it's finally worked. Well, a sample of one. <laughs> That's not how science works, right. unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you brought this up. Uh, by percentage, how many horses would you give a wind operation? Okay, how many jumpers would you give a wind operation to? By, by percentage of your string? I'd say 50% of them. 50%. Yeah. Okay, and of those 50%, how many do you think show immediate re result, show immediate upswing up improvement? I'd say. 70 to 80%. Really? Yeah. I, we had really, really good, we've had really, really good success with them and um, Jerry Kelly does all ours and um, Dying and Feathered and we've had exceptional success and I, you know, if, it, if there's a problem there, get it done, get it fixed, don't be wish-washing around and don't get it done, say, oh, we will do it at the end of the season. The horse can't breathe. Like, can you imagine running in a race and suddenly your air being mm. cut off? Like, it's the most horrible feeling. And then that horse probably, if it is having trouble breeding, it probably won't want, if, and then you eventually do get it fixed, it, it won't want to push itself that far to, because they're going to be thinking about that bad memory. Like, sometimes they do take a run. If you haven't got it done quick enough, they do take a run to get their confidence back. But I think the key in it is getting them done as soon as you hear a noise. Get the galloping scope on it, see what needs to be done and don't dick about it, just get it done. See, here's, here's my read of, of, of Kate's anecdotal evidence, James, and that yeah. is that if 80% of their wind operations are showing positive results, that's massively defying the overall statistic. Well, that's not a statistic, that's, a, that's yeah, you saying anecdotal. 80%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but, it, it, but it, that massively defies the statistical evidence, which shows that nowhere near that many actually work. So I'm inferring from that, A, your vet's very good, yeah. mm -hmm. and B, you're actually identifying the horses that need it. That's what you're so good you're at. So you're, you're not. That's what you're good at, Lucky. Yeah. You've cut through the argument perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about any stable here. Are we? We're talking about a massively successful stable. They're better, a lot, probably a lot better than average at identifying the small cohort of horses that do actually improve for them. But let's get back to this brain power. This We've, thing hasn't improved for a wind up. It's improved because they were they were making it do something it didn't want to do. Yeah. So it's back over hurdles. Yeah, yeah. It's got a stack of ability. But every time, this is the point of, of like where science has got a part to, to play. If you look down at the paper and it says W2, and then people on some, some person on the TV goes, oh, it's improved for a wind up. 
That's not how science works. Mm. Science works, as we're going to see in a bit when we talk about the Cheltenham Festival Review. Mm. This is proper science yeah. in here. This is proper stuff. Uh, science works through, through considering the broader base of evidence. Well, what we know about brain power, yeah. and what we've always known, and the man on the line has always known, is that he's yeah. a very, very good horse. Michael Buckley, good morning. Good morning to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you rather than Andrew Meyer about Not him. And, uh, <laughs> tremendously, a picture of Kevin Buckley, no That's relation, right. appeared yeah, no, no. with, with your name on it. But a the size of Coolmore, sadly. But, <laughs> but, I, but I know who you are, Michael, and, uh, and, uh, and it was very much your decision to go back over hurdles yesterday. And I said to Kate a few moments ago that... Um, it, it, it doesn't often work when an owner says to a trainer, I'd like to do this. Normally they end up with egg on their face, but it's, it's, it's had a, a glorious conclusion. Well, it did really. I mean, that, this, this horse, I mean, he thinks he's the real dude, always has done. He goes tanking around the place because he can go very fast and work very well. He probably doesn't have to have much brain power and hasn't used it a lot in his life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, so, but Nick has always told me what a fantastically good workhorse he is, and translating that into something on the track took took a, quite a long time. In fact, he's won two big races, both in terrible days. The last time he ran a big yeah. race was in a fog at Ascot, and you couldn't see anything. Um, but I, I just got very disquieted by the horse over fences because the first time he ran, he sort of rushed off in the lead at Kempton and won by 29 lengths or something. But his, his style of chasing was, he got, he got to the other side, but he sort of threw himself at the fences a lot of the time, head someone up in the air. And then we went through last year where, in truth, it was pretty tough for him. It was deep ground all the time. Um, he had problems breathing. But his technique just wasn't what you'd want, I don't think, in a, to win a top class, um, Chase, but it, mm. if your horse is running on ground he doesn't love and he's also making a horrible noise, you, it's pretty confusing to know what is it that's causing the problem. And, and how, um, how dispiriting is it as an owner? And I, you and Nicky Henderson are great friends and you go back years and years and years and years, so he's going to tell you everything. But how dispiriting is it as an owner when you've got a trainer saying, this horse works the house down, he's the only horse who can live without you or up the gallops, blah, blah, blah. And then you're going to the races and again and again and again and being, and being disappointed. Well, I had an ITV um, microphone put in my face yesterday, and I said then, and I actually mean it, I, I'm a sort of pathetically sentimental uh, kind of a guy and probably over-romantic, and just to keep going to the races and have to deal with that awful disappointment, and then you hear he's working brilliantly again, and you think, oh, today I'm going to go. And it kind of gets me, got me down, frankly, and I kept on looking at him, and then he came back this year, having had this windlock, which actually we had it in Ireland, and John Hallis guy said he really, really needed it. So I thought, oh, well, maybe today will be the day, and we'll have a happy surprise. And again, you know, he was competent, I suppose, but he was never going, he's never going to win a top-class race over fences, in my view, <clears throat> if, he doesn't, if he can't be really fluent. So I said to Nicky a couple of weeks ago, well, actually, at Cheltenham that day, I'd like to go try hurdles again. Because I thought, if anything else, if I was right, even if he we went back to over fences, at least he might get more cheerful again and, and do something that he enjoyed. Um, anyway, we had this discussion then about the going for the Peterborough chase. And I said, oh, God, 
humor me, my friend. We've been together all these years. Um, humor me and let's have a go over hurdles. And if it's a complete cock up, then it's my fault. And if it's if it all works, you'll be the hero. Well, anyway, he took being a hero away from me by telling everybody yesterday that it was, that it was my idea. <laughs> he was very he was very sweet about it. He actually arrived at the race yesterday when I first saw him and said. Well done. It was a great shout. This is the right race. So uh, he'd decided he, whatever happened that it was the right thing to do, given the way the race panned out and uh, Lorena didn't come over and one thing or another. Um, and um, it was just a joy for me to see him enjoying himself. He loves tanking along and he had his head down and he was sort of hungry for the race. That's the kind of horse he is. So I think, personally, I think he might improve again, having done that, been full of confidence and doing something that he loves to do. I know, I know you um, you really live the the moment with these horses. You, you get very attached to them, and, and you, you say you're sentimental, and I, I've seen well, you I'm when too you... emotional. That's yeah, true. you you get quite down when, when things go wrong, and, 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 and obviously ecstatic when, when things go right. And I, I was just looking on, on, on Twitter today, uh, the, the tweeter that goes under the name of Anna Glog's daughter, who posts all the old race cards from years ago, has got a... a, a a, a clipping from I think 42 years ago. It said the much talked yeah. about. Um, well, don't humiliate me. I, I listen, Michael. <laughs> you, you were. You were. I'm going to ask her out on a date soon. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were about 18 then, to be fair. But um, you know, you you were being you were you were talked about as a powerful owner all those years ago. You've had some wonderful moments as a as an owner, and again, some some quite dispiriting ones as well. Yeah. Do, do you do you still have the same sort of appetite for it? Do you? Do you still get the same sort of kick out of it as you did then? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, inevitably, if you've had a lot of horses, and you know, I've, I've been lucky that, and I am a small owner, I don't have any illusions about anything else, and also, um, I've really always been, been doing it out of my league. I've kind of bought the horses and then thought, how the hell am I going to pay for them after? <laughs> Um, Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah, I get it. A wee bit. But it is, when you get a good horse, it's really thrilling. I mean, and I've had lots of horses, and I suppose I've possibly got less with the moderate ones than I used to have. Um, and I love the good ones. And the one thing that I haven't got the appetite for is seeing these horses um, have really bad accidents or kill them. I... I I'm too thin-skinned now. I, I find it sort of absolutely heartbreaking. And I, when Finian's Rainbow was running around towards the end, I had this sort of premonition something awful was going to happen to him. Mm. Fortunately, it didn't. And he's happily living out his life in Kentucky now with Connor Murphy. But um, I said to Nikki then, you know, if something happens to Finian, so I'll probably pack it up. And it's nothing to do with you. I just can't stand dealing with that kind of pain. And actually, in a, in a, in a very limited way, watching Brain Power struggle to get over those fences. I mean, Nicky had an aspiration to turn him into a top-class chaser, and good for him. That's a normal route. Um, and he's got the... If he, was a, if he could become a top-class horse, obviously, he's got the reigning top-class horses at champion level, and champion chase level, cha champion hurdle level. Mm. But um, I just had this feeling he wasn't enjoying it, and I could see yesterday that and if you look back on the last two or three chases he was in, he just galloped in a different way. I think that that's what he should do. I, 
Listen, you're not going to go back over the fence. Sorry, Nicky, if you're listening. But <laughs> <laughs> we found what, what, where his sphere is, and uh, we'll just have to take our chances going down that route. And the good and the nice thing, Michael, because I know I know you like to tease Nicky Henderson as well as uh, as enjoy his company, is that you can wind him up between now and and, and the Cheltenham Festival about how brain power is going to beat Bouvardere in the Champion Hurdle. <laughs> well, um, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say what I'm about to say, but I'll say it anyway. Good. How? I know last year it was a day when Barry was down there and he was riding Bouverdere. And what horses do at home and what they do on the track are very, very, very different things. So I'm not suggesting for a second that Brain Power could, uh, could do this against Bouverdere in a race. But I do know Barry rang me up a day or two later and said, Boy, your horse worked well. And I said, Nicky said he worked well. Um, on Saturday, and he said, "Yeah, well, he, he wouldn't have noticed quite what happened because we were together when we went past him. But by the time they got to the top of the gallop, your horse was testing. Um, at least it gives you encouragement to have a go in March." Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Delighted to say here on Luck on Sunday, I'm joined once again by the Chief Regulatory Officer for the British Horse Racing Authority, uh, Brant Dunshay, with, a, with an intray that is bulging even more than it normally does, mainly because of the publication of this weighty document, the Cheltenham Festival Review, which has received widespread praise from one of our guests this morning and somewhat less praise from one of our other guests this morning. And I, I suppose when you, you conduct a review into a spate of fatalities and then put forward recommendations that the sport and the race course have to take up, you're going to expect a fair few brickbacks, Brent, aren't you? Absolutely, Nick. Look, these these sorts of reviews are always challenging. Uh, we we knew from the outset when we uh, undertook our initial analysis of the the work um, that we had to, to do that there were no clear um, standout issues that we were able to focus on in isolation. So mm. we adopted an approach whereby it was very much, a, in some respects, an academic approach. But we, we looked to identify a whole range of factors that may, in some small way, contribute to increased risk. And whether or not in isolation or combination, we could identify ways to, to, to find um, small gains that uh, incrementally could go a long way towards reducing and mitigating risk. And of course, you can never keep everybody happy. Um, and through the process, we consulted with many people, uh, industry groups, and the challenge is always to try and strike the balance between identifying the issues, uh, identifying ways in which you can improve outcomes, uh, but at the same time, um, and, and going off the back of some of the comments Lizzie just made prior to the break, we also need to have an appreciation for the horse, the horsemen and women, the jockeys, the people that are mm. involved in the sport. I'm a horseman, have been around horses all my life. Whilst we've applied an academic approach to this piece of work, uh, I'm very much cognizant of all of the issues that are relevant here um, and all the, the competing views that we, we've got to have regard and respect for. But it has to be evidence-based in the first instance. It, in it? the first so that's instance, why you collate a big document. In like the first that. instance, yes, absolutely it does. But that does not mean we don't also look at suggestive uh, evidence as well, where we might not have yet a categorical picture, but it may suggest that we need to make some sort of um, take some sort of uh, measures to uh, if in some small way improve an outcome. 
uh, whilst we work towards building a greater picture around the data and the analysis. What is suggestive evidence? Well, we're, we may not necessarily have uh, a, a set of data that could be considered statistically significant at a particular point in time, and we've identified that there are a range of factors that we need to look further at. Mm. Uh, and, and at the moment, we may be thinking, well, this may indicate to us that there's, there's a, a potentially an issue here, uh, and that can then form part of the part of the work we will do in the recommendation that talks about the development of a predictive model where we can really focus working with the industry on identifying all the various factors that we could look at to then build a greater picture over time. The other week at a smaller race course there were four fatalities on, yeah. on one day. I remember being at in Canton a few years ago there were five fatalities on one day. I was yeah. at Weatherby one day when there were six fatalities on one day. Why is a spate of fatalities at a smaller track on a Tuesday any less important than seven fatalities at the Cheltenham Festival? And why don't all such incidences have a 35-page yeah. document it's produced? A, it's, a, it's an excellent point, Nick, and, and I, I can answer that by saying th they are as equally important. And in fact, uh, we have quite a robust process uh, that looks at, on a weekly basis, uh, falls and fatalities across the country. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a monitoring system and where uh, you know, we know what our rolling averages are, we're continuously working to reduce them, but where we see an incident like we had unfortunately at Musselburgh recently, we do have a process that we put in place, an intervention in effect, where we ha we'll have our race course inspector um, visit the course, look at whether or not there is something that's happened or some particular unusual occurrence uh, on that given day that has contributed to this. Mm. Uh, so that, that is always a constant. What's obviously uh, relevant about the Cheltenham Review is that it, it, is, it is such a significant sporting event. Uh, so, many, so many eyeballs, you know, n not just across our sport, but across the, the British sporting uh, sector uh, are focused on Cheltenham Festival every year. Um, uh, they're, 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 when there is a significant um, issue such as this that captures the, the attention, um, uh, we need to focus on it. But more importantly, uh, you know, if if we lose six horses at one festival, you know, me as a horseman, I love my horses. Uh, all of us that work in this regulatory space, we're here because we love the horses, and and we we want to work together with the industry to to do whatever we can to to reduce to reduce that risk. To what extent is the publication of a document like this informed by the threat that you perceive from outside the sport? Uh, well, certainly, obviously, the, the, the issue around the, um, the debate in Parliament mm. a month or so ago, uh, that, that, that all has occurred very much well after we, we'd even made the decision to, to undertake yeah. this work and develop the scope for the work. So, uh, of, course, of course, we're conscious of changing uh, social perceptions. Um, we have to be attuned to that. You know, we engage with politicians, we engage with, with government, uh, and, and understand that, that uh, whilst um, we're constantly striving to make things as safe as we can for our horses and our, and our jockeys, uh, we do hold a social licence to conduct our sport, we respect that and we understand that we must also collectively as, sport, as a sport um, be mindful of that and, and, and be, be constantly you know, considering the views of others. I was flicking through some of the comments made yeah. by some of the MPs in that debate, and some of them were quite stark. I mean, you had an awful lot of understanding from people who, yeah. who are already great supporters yeah. of the sport, like Lawrence Robertson exactly. and yeah. Philip Davis and people who yeah. go racing an awful lot. Other members, and 
quite a few members, particularly yeah. on the on the Labour benches, and they could yet be in government fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, were pretty scathing, and we're we're, we're we're trying to essentially set you targets yeah. Yeah. for reduction of fatalities. Mm. How comfortable are you with that? How comfortable are you working towards a target number of fatality reduction? Look, what. what your point is a very good one. We have a range of responsibilities as the, the governing body and regulator for the sport. One of them is to represent the sport as well. So yes, as you say, some MPs and politicians actually, they, they are close to the sport, they understand it, but there are many that are not. Mm. So we obviously have a responsibility to ensure that they're properly briefed, they understand the level of detail that we go into in, in, in pieces of work like this, and the effort that not just the regulator, but the wonderful people, the thousands of people that are working every day with their horses in, in yards right across the country, the wonderful work they're doing to improve what is already a fantastic life that our horses live, but to improve the outcomes for them. So we, we need to educate those um, in, in government and those outside of the industry about the wonderful work we do. Of course, focusing on targets is a challenge, but what we must do is we must continually work towards improving and reducing risk. You're in an interesting spot really because you've been accused of not being robust enough in your defence of the sport. Yeah. That you should take a more entrenched position to defend the sport, to present mm. a front saying we've got nothing to be frightened of. Mm. How comfortably do you sit with that? Yeah, look I, I, I spoke to some trainers this week and, uh, and I think part of the challenge for us is, is helping our, our participants understand how much work we actually do in defending the sport. Um, uh, take for example the, the, the article, Matthew Sade's article yeah. this week, I mean you know, we, we came out and we put the position quite robustly um, and I, I respect Matthew as an author, I've, I've read his work and uh, but I, I wasn't overly impressed with that particular article and you know, we, we talked about that and, and we felt that we needed to, we needed to be quite clear and, and defend the sport and we do a lot of work around defending the sport, whether it's publicly or, or um, behind closed doors. This was your response to Matthew Side's article. Mm. I think this was quite important really because, again, uh, the perception is that you've been rather craven to either politicians or the wider media or social mores changing. Mm. And in fact, this was a, a rather more robust response perhaps than people have come to expect. Yeah. And, and quick. Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, we, we we spoke about it immediately. With the moment we we knew that this this had been this had been published, and uh, you know, to use language, emotive language like thrashed. I mean, you and I are at the races often, Nick, and uh, and that that's not a way that that, mm. that I could ever describe uh, uh, a, a horse being treated on a British race course. I will talk a bit about the whip yeah, a little sure. bit later, but essentially I want to major on the review, yeah. the festival review, because this is the piece of work that has the most significant welfare implications for the sport. And I just dig dig down a little bit into it. Just talk about the the veterinary aspect of it yeah. to start with. It, again, when you introduce suggestions as to what you might do in in, in mm. augmenting veterinary care, it rather it, it's rather presupposed by people within the industry that you've been doing nothing before and now you're going to suddenly over-regulate them. The yeah. truth, of course, as with all these things, is somewhere in the middle. Exactly, and uh, in effect, the, the recommendations around the increased veterinary provision are really an extension of what uh, of some really great work that's already commenced uh, mm. and what we've already we've, we've already been doing. One of the points I would like to make um, 
in the previous uh, session before the break, you guys were talking yeah. about talking about uh, the, the veterinary recommendations. And, and, and Kay Harrington was expressing it, reservations it, that it, overzealous it, vets could second guess a trainer who knew it, their exactly. horse better than they did. Yeah, and, and I was discussing at Cheltenham on Friday this this issue in, in the United States uh, recently. And, and w what what we're actually trying to do, you need to read the recommendations uh, in, in their entirety and, and look at them as a suite because. What we're actually absolutely not trying to do is, is have some sort of controversy on race day. Mm. The recommendations ask for trainers to provide us with medication uh, declarations for the, uh, for the 45 days prior to their race at the festival um, and to provide that to us 10 days before the race. What we're trying to do is use that as an opportunity for our veterinary professionals to capture a, an overall snapshot of that horse's history uh, and enable our veterinary officers to engage with trainers, engage with their veterinary surgeons mm -hmm. well before the horse comes to the race course to identify any issues, to understand whether they have a horse that might be, um, you know, a horse that, that doesn't move quite as freely as others but is otherwise perfectly sound and healthy and able to race, to identify those issues so that we're not trying to make these, mm. these um, decisions in a rushed way, under pressure, on race day and create controversies. It's about actually trying to ensure that we take those issues away from the race course and and, uh, and 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 not be dealing with them uh, under under a short time frame. Talk about some of the more um, specific recommendations. Reduction of field sizes yep. for the Cheltenham Festival. Now that is going to upset people and anger people because, of course, of course. everybody wants to have a runner. Yeah, understand, absolutely understand that. Yeah. What is it that has told you that you need to take these field sizes down, particularly mm. in, in mm. two mile chases? Where, where, what evidence specifically in yeah. that review tells you you need to do that? So, if you look at the data, um, what, what we've seen is that uh, in two mile chases, the the uh, the uh, field sizes, the safety factor, um, is a relevant consideration in terms of in terms of faller rates, and we believe that if you can reduce fallers faller mm. rates, mm -hmm. you ultimately reduce your risk of of injury and fatality. Uh, to what extent do you need to dig down into how a horse died? To what extent actually is that important, or is it simply a question of there are X many fatalities in this race, and there are Y many runners, and therefore we no, can reduce that statistically by taking the? No, no, it's it's. I mean, and that is just one statistic as a mm. snapshot. And when I, I, I we introduced earlier, I was talking about, you know, sometimes what we learned from this piece of work was that uh, a small issue in isolation might not necessarily be uh, as significant a, a factor, but when you combine it with a number of other factors, mm. um, it, it, it could accumulate to, to be quite a problem. Of course, the actual way a horse might fall, um, the, the, ha the, the, the way it led to the fall, all those factors are actually relevant, mm. um, and often they're, they're very different circumstances every time, yeah. and so that's why it's very challenging to understand exactly what has led to it. But if we can identify one small thing that may have contributed to that fall, whether it be uh, you know, something to do with, the, with a particular obstacle or um, a relevant factor that might be part of that particular horse's veterinary history, if we can identify it, it just helps us build the picture so that if we need to make sound, robust policy decisions in the future, we can do them we can make those decisions based on, mm. on evidence and, and, and fact. Uh, the other recommendation that's had the most publicity is this uh, 
I don't want to say it's 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 small beer, but to my mind, it is the the idea that you're asking people to use more experienced conditionals in the yeah. conditional jockeys race at the mm. Jelland Festival. Mm. What what's the thinking behind that? What evidence yeah. has told you you need to do that? Uh, we looked at so again we we broke down. Uh, jockeys by, by license type mm. to, to understand whether or not there were, there were differences there and there were greater risk with, with others. And we could see quite clearly, and, and initially it was actually perhaps surprising how clear the difference was, uh, that conditionals do carry a much greater risk of falling um, than amateurs, for example. Mm. And uh, what, what we believe is that uh, if, if we are able to um, reduce the incentive for trainers to um, engage the, the least experienced conditionals, that in some small way may lead to a reduction in, in, in falls. And look, and look these, these things are, are always um, a, 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 an evolution and you know, we may find that after capturing another 12 months, two years of data, we, mm. we will go, go back to the, the work we've done and, and may, it may not bear fruit, but we'll, we'll continue to monitor it. How often as a, as a, as a regulatory officer do you get told that something's the thin end of a wedge? Often, often. <laughs> yeah, Every often. day, several yeah, times a day? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, but you must always appreciate and respect the views of, of, of our industry participants. And, I, and I, I, do, I do understand it. I mean, as a, as a sport, as an industry, we're, we're, we're currently under a lot of um, pressure from outside of the industry. And, we, we need to work with our people to, to understand um, their perspectives as well, and we're trying hard to do that. For this particular section, you'll be relieved to know that we're just, time is ebbing away. Right. But I need, so we need, we need to nutshell this whip issue. Yeah, sure. Because there's been an awful lot talk. When I mean, we banged on about it ad nauseum yep. on this program mm. and elsewhere. We've yep. talked about the Matthew side piece. We've talked about your response to it, right? What is the BHA's position on the whip? right now because there's been conflicting messages this week yeah sure, uh, sure. the chief executive was saying that mm. stop, uh, new regulations were going to be brought in in january i yeah. think he he was somewhat misunderstood there wasn't he or he yeah. he gave the wrong impression yes look uh, nick and i uh, was on the day of the cheltenham festival had, had been uh, doing a two-hour press conference so we'd been you know on 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 game for two hours and uh and that's quite draining at times. And uh, yeah, I believe Nick had a, had a conversation with with uh, journalists after I'd left the, the room, and um, and I think he was it, there was some confusion around the point he was making. But the the position is right now is that and very open here, Nick. When we announced the review into the Cheltenham um, Festival, I think our initial response was that we would also be looking at whip penalties. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, we realised that. That didn't that didn't make sense in terms of um, you know the, the focus needed to be the fatalities. Uh, we quickly drafted the scope and we we set aside the issue around whip penalties mm -hmm. from the Cheltenham review mm -hmm. because it didn't fit right. Um, in the meantime, uh, I've had members of my team doing a lot of work on looking at data, looking at what's happened since 2011 around penalties, around uh, offences, getting an understanding, developing a picture. Um, always with the view that once this piece of work, which has been a substantive effort, you move is out of the, the way, right. we move on to the next so piece. The, so the whip review will commence in the new year? So The whip so, penalty review will yeah, commence so, in the new so, year? So, so, so what's happened is uh, uh, we've been working with, with the sport, with the industry, with our members um, on developing an equine welfare board, mm -hmm. uh, program board, which um, it will be the forum for which we will be able to engage with and work with the sport 
on any major welfare initiative such as the WIP. So um, there's a process happening at the moment to appoint an independent chair of that welfare board uh, and we will work with that group on uh, identifying what the future, future for the WIP will look like. So it was suggested in the interview that, that Nick gave that senior figures within racing are preparing for the end of the use of the whip within three to five years. Can you categorically now say as the Chief Regulatory Officer that that is not the case? Look, what, what uh, senior figures are saying, uh, I, I can only speak for what, from what I know and what I'm saying and what we're doing. Uh, you're, you're in charge. Yeah, so no, no, you, but you I mean, tell, but, but but I think the inference it. in the article, yeah. the BBC article, was, was referencing other, other uh, industry figures. Um, our position is is that we're going to be in a, a perfect position from January to work with the new Equine Welfare Program Board to develop what the future looks like. And you know, it's 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 like any of these things. We know, we understand that the, the padded whip, if used in accordance with the rules, appropriately and properly, um, is not a welfare issue for us. We know we we believe that strongly. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't take on board what's being said externally. Mm. And um, as well as listening to our, our stakeholders, and we'll do that. And we'll, we'll do that in collaboration with industry, the PJA, the NTF, um, through the Equine Welfare Program or Board to shape the future. And that'll start, that process will start in January. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back, you're watching Luck on Sunday in the company of Brant Dunshay, the BHA's Chief Regulatory Officer, Lizzie Kelly and James Willoughby. Luck on Sunday regulars and it's great to have you with us on our final show on Racing UK before we move to Racing TV tomorrow and next week's Christmas special. I'll be joined by Ruby Walsh, Neil Channing and Jason Watson. So that is certainly one to, to look forward to. We're just watching Gary Stevens there and our thanks to Christina Blacker for a wonderful interview with him, retiring legend. Um, and uh, Lizzie, it's, it's a pretty difficult transition for a man who has known very little else for that long than yeah. riding top class horses to, I know he's retired a few times before, but he's always come back and now he can't come back. No, exactly. Um, and I think that people like him obviously have so much talent and so much skill um, and really are the top of their game in their sphere. And it's difficult once you're unable to compete to then find something that you are incredibly professional or incredibly good at. Um, obviously a lot of your your whole life really goes towards building your career, um, whether you're a jockey or a boxer or whatever. Um, but I'm sure that he'll find various things that he can do. And very, well, because he's already been a movie star and a TV personality, so I'm sure that'll uh, come into play again. Very few people, as you were saying a few moments ago, experience that um, adrenaline surge on such a regular basis. So your your body chemistry is interfered with in a way that most people can't really identify with. Yeah, and sports people um, do notoriously struggle once they retire to, you know, find that buzz and, and yeah. become sort of adrenaline junkies, if you like. And we were talking earlier about white water rafting and bungee jumping. You know, mm. people might do that once in their life, whereas a jockey could go out and ride in six races a day and okay that might become the norm but riding the winner of the Cheltenham Gold Cup for example mm. that is such a high that your average person just doesn't experience so it's very difficult to replace those sorts of things. Do you think that's why somebody like Richard Johnson has done so well because his temperament seems to be so even so he's, he doesn't allow that adrenaline to get the better of him? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a there's a distinct balance, really. You have to obviously not get too overwhelmed, whether it's a good or a bad 
sort of day at the office, if you like. But on the other hand, you, you know, you want to enjoy those times because that's what you do it for. Yeah. You know, if you've if you have just won Ryanair or the Queen Mother, you want to enjoy it. Yeah. You're going to let yourself enjoy it because yeah. what's the point in doing it for the last 20 years if you're not going to enjoy it? So. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? Here's what I wanted to ask you. you you've been a regulator in Australia, or you've worked extensively in Australia. Yeah. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia, yeah. seeing the, the racing scene there. You've spent yeah. time around harness racing, mm. thoroughbred racing. Mm. Uh, how do jockeys, in your view, differ as a group here to the other countries that you've worked in, in terms of their approach to the sport and their attitude? Or indeed, do they? I, I to, be, to be honest, Nick, I. I don't necessarily think there is a difference. I think they're all incredibly impressive professional sports people, and I, I see that. I was in Hong Kong last week, and uh, you know, the, the, our jockeys here represent represent themselves mm. in in mm. such a professional way, just like the, the the jockeys from other parts of the world do as well. I mean, you know, I've I've been very fortunate to also perform in you know professional sport at a very high level myself, and I understand the point that Lizzie's making, and. Uh, uh, our jockeys are as professional as any professional sports people you, you would mm -hmm. see anywhere in the world in, in, in their chosen field. Just remind me what your sporting athletics, discipline... I was an athlete, athletics. You were an athlete. Yeah, yeah. What was your... Um... Yeah, I ran 800 metres was, was mm -hmm. my distance. So I ran at quite a high level and, and did it for 15 years. And, and that was the thing that I really struggled with was when the body couldn't do it anymore, uh, you know, saying goodbye to it. So it's, it's really hard. Um, and did that come suddenly, or uh, progressively over time? Yeah, so you knew, so you knew it was people. you knew it kind yeah. of knew it was coming. Yeah. But that's putting an enormous amount of strain on your knees, oh, I guess. Yeah, your body, yeah, joints. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what was your sort of highest uh, level of achievement? I, I, I competed as a professional on a professional circuit in Australia for uh -huh. yeah, fifteen years. Um, race, race on you know over handicap. Um, mm. Yeah, it was uh, won a race at the Stall Gift, which is one of the most prestigious races, uh, mm. professional racing meets in Australia. So. Would that have been your? Would that have been the sort of career pinnacle? Yeah, I got, I got yeah, I got got to that that level, and that was an incredible, incredible experience. I'd worked six years for that, and it was um, something I'll never forget. Do you think that's helped you then in the job that you're doing? Do you think it gives you greater empathy and greater understanding of what people? Yes, I do. Of? Yeah, absolutely, I do. I I, I respect elite level sports people, uh, I mean, I, I know and I understand the sort of effort and work that has to go into being at the top of your game in a chosen sport. Lizzie and uh, James, you were listening to my chat with Brandt uh, before mm. the break and before we heard from, from Gary Stevens. Um, yeah. What observations, I, I, you've been praising the review as a, as a piece of work as a, yeah. in terms of uh, the, the thorough nature of it. Yeah, what about people have read it. Yeah. Yeah. What about yeah, then that's a very good point. Yeah. What about the the specific recommendations that have come out of it? What do, what do you make of them? Well, I think Brandon was just telling me off air that the, the that when one conducts a statistical inference of something, there's another layer where you need to talk to the professionals, as they have done already to mm. some extent, but these con these um, discussions should be ongoing. What's important from a scientific point of view is that the that racing uses the scientific method of reviewing evidence of computing um, statistics at an academic level uh, because those tools are available out there for the sport to leverage but it doesn't mean that's the end of mm. the story then we know we've got all these people out there who are as you say very impressive individuals uh, trainers jockeys it's very hard to maintain a career at the top of anything yeah. it doesn't matter what you do you require you to be a special person and those special people have got special insights 
And a statistician would be an absolute fool not to think that there's something exists beyond computation. Um, but computation, I'm here to speak up for that. Um, and in the past, it's not been done at the, the level it needed to be done. Now, the Grand National Review, which I thought was very similar reading the two things, I, thought, I felt that it was a similar flow, mm. the way that, inter that, that the, was, the evidence was introduced and discussed. I thought that was an, a superb piece where anybody would say that. Um, and hopefully this one will have the same impact. You described this and the, and the whip, the impending whip review as racing's Brexit moment. Absolutely. And funnily enough, the parallel struck me because, of course, when the initial bill that Theresa May brought to Parliament was um, being debated, it be soon became clear that 99.9% .9 of the MPs that were commenting on it hadn't actually read it. Right. Well, <laughs> because yeah. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, that that's the case here, but yeah. it, it, you it must sometimes think... God, will you just read the damn thing yes. before you start taking it apart? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not going to say that because you're not no. going to throw the sports professionals under the bus, but I can say it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, but we were very conscious in drafting the report to ensure that you know, the executive summary covered, captured all of mm. the key elements. Yeah. Um, because I appreciate, I mean, you know, I've read that that document mm. I don't know how many times. Um, and it's, it's not light reading in mm. many parts. So... Uh, you know, I appreciate that not everybody's going to be able to read it in detail, but what I've said to, you know, the trainers and professionals that I've spoken with is, if there's anything you're unsure about, just give us a call and we'll try and talk it through with you so that you, to help understand your understanding. So. All right, I asked Lizzie um, before the break when we were doing the talking points, you, you, she was the editor of the Racing Post, yeah, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. You're Brant Dunshay and you're about to conduct I the WIP review. Well, what, what is your guiding principle? Evidence. And I think that is the difference that I want to stress really strongly, that science depends on evidence. Everything we've achieved as a society has been based on evidence. And in that report about the very, very unfortunate deaths at Cheltenham, it is an evidence-based thing. I've yet to see anything on the whip that's evidence-based. And the reason for that, in my opinion, and those among my friends with whom I discussed this night and day on Christmas Day. Don't do that on go, Christmas Day. Going back <laughs> Give when, it a rest on Christmas back to Day. when I was a teenager. <laughs> is that why I found that Matthew side piece so offensive was the thought that me and people I deeply respect, who I've, li you know, I've discussed racing with and watched racing with all our lives, that we've never even thought about these things. That it's never crossed our mind as to whether <laughs> racing is fair on the horse. In fact, these are things we've discussed endlessly, and there is a robust defence of the use of the whip. Now, my opinion, this is my opinion, nobody mm. else's opinion. If racing sells out on the facts, like it hasn't done here, if it sells out on the facts about using a foam-filled air-cushioned device to get the effort out that we discussed, what's that, what's that called, Cogri? Mm -hmm. if it, to get that level of effort that we discussed early on and, uh, about, if it sells out on that for the sake of appearances, it sells out on the nature of fairness to the horse, the racing experience. Yeah. Yeah. And if it does that, I, for one, have been completely abandoned by something that I've followed and believed in all my life. And only one thing, sorry, Lucky, last thing, only one thing would have ever led me to go to Parliament, as I did with a group mm. of my friends. And it's the proudest moment of my life to see my friends around that table in Westminster and Ryan Moore there and someone I had nothing in common with and never spoken to before, and to have had a discussion at the level we did, and to hear his, what he said, and how it brilliantly he was able to represent the views of the actual practitioners, and how we all agreed, that was 
the, the most, the best I've ever felt as a human being. And if we lose that for the sake of flipping public appearances, we may as well sell the whole ethos, the hundreds of years of racing, we may as well sell it out because we desperately need to know who the best horses are. And there is a limit to which we should go to establish mm. that. But we're nowhere near that limit. You ask horsemen, we're nowhere near the limit of where horses will go. And it's very, very, very crucially important for all those who believe in the merits of the, rate, uh, of, of the sport that horses are not cognizant of the human ambitions of a race. And the whip, fairly used, properly constituted, is racing in and of itself. If we can't find out who the best horses is, I'm going to go and play another game, and I know lots of other people will, too. See, you've got a big responsibility here, as if you didn't know it already. Yeah. Because you're not just a regulator. You're now go, you, you've got to reassure the public yeah. that the whip is a valuable and safe tool, but you've also got to reassure all of us within the sport mm. that you're going to robustly act in the sport's best interest. Yeah, of course, and it's, it's, it's an enormous challenge and responsibility, mm. and I respect the point that James made around, you know, significant and important industry decisions need to be made, made based on evidence. There's no dispute about that. Uh, but I do also respect the, the position and the point that's been put by, by, um, by Lizzie and others around, you know, the, 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 the tool as it is, the, the whip as it is. We don't have any welfare concerns provided, as James said, it's used in accordance with the rules and appropriately. Um, the, the challenge for us as a sport is striking that balance and, and working out what's what's what the future direction looks like. The point I will make, uh, point I will make though, Nick, whilst yes, obviously it is a responsibility of mine um, working with my colleagues to, to, to direct the traffic on this, um, we have developed this, this uh, working with the, the members to develop this uh, equine welfare program board, mm -hmm. uh, which will come with an independent chair. And these sorts of big decisions shouldn't be an individual's alone. No. And what I think and how I might think that, that, that this issue should be addressed is actually irrelevant. It's about working collaboratively with the sport to get the best outcome for the sport. That includes the likes of James and Lizzie and our trainers. It's working with everyone to get, get the, the appropriate position for the sport. Yes, there'll have to be hard decisions made, yeah. and inevitably somebody has to make those, but yeah. But just to conclude, the, the general received wisdom now within the sport that we're moving irrevocably towards the the abandonment of the whip full stop and that within three or five years it'll be gone. Yeah. Can you just boot that into the long grass for us just to... Well, I can tell you now that no decision in that regard's been made. That's not quite the same no, well, thing. No, well, it hasn't. It hasn't. No. I mean, there's, there's constantly... Everybody's discussing the whip at the moment. Um, it's increasingly... There's been momentum over the last six months to discuss it. I was in, in Hong Kong with the international... Um, uh, rules Committee last week and there was half an hour on the whip mm. and we couldn't even get collective agreement in the room like amongst the other, other countries around the world on how the whip um, is perceived, how it should be used. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.